If you will join me in Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 in our ongoing series through Paul's letter. The title of our sermon is Christ is Proclaimed. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are preach, confident, and gospel. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Ten Boom tells of a time she discovered that God was working even in the most horrific circumstances. If you don't know her story, it's someone you should get to know about. Corrie Ten Boom is a hero of the faith. She was a German citizen, and along with her sister Betsy, uh, she was imprisoned by the Nazis for hiding Jews behind the wall of their Holland home. If you've spent any time studying Nazi Germany, you will know that Nazi prison conditions were nearly unbearable. But Corey and her sister were taken into the prison, and Corey wrote this. She said, Barracks 8 was in the quarantine compound. Next to us, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers, were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of a cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sounds stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. And yet there were moments, there were, there were opportunities when, when Corey and Betsy, along with other women who were held in that prison, were able to gather together and have Bible studies. Corey said it was like homeless people clustered around a blazing fire. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the Word of God. Now, eventually, the ladies were moved to a place called Barracks 28, and and Corey was horrified by the fact that the reeking straw bed platforms on which they were supposed to sleep swarmed with fleas. And in their discouragement, Betsy told Corey, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That is what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. Corey wrote, I stared at her, and then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. But they prayed. They prayed and thanked God for the fact that they were together. They had their Bible and they were able to read it and study it. And they thanked God for that. And they they prayed and thanked God for the crowds of prisoners so that more people could be there to hear and study the Word of God. And then Betsy thanked God for the fleas. And Corey wrote, the fleas. That was too much. 
Betsy, there's no way that God can make me grateful for a flea. But Betsy challenged her sister, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so Corey wrote in her journal, we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. However, it turns out that Betsy was not wrong. The fleas were a nuisance, but they actually turned out to be a blessing. Because of the fleas, the women were able to have Bible studies in the, in the barracks without, uh, without any hindrance, without, uh, with a great deal of freedom. They were never bothered by the Nazi guards coming in and harassing them. And they finally discovered it was because the fleas were there that the guards were kept out almost entirely. And it was through these fleas that God protected the women from abuse and harassment. Dozens of desperate women were free to hear the Word of God. And through those fleas, God protected them from much worse things that made sure they had their deepest and truest needs met. That their hearts and their minds in the midst of those circumstances were set on Christ and their souls were being fed with the pure meat of the Word of God. Now as we continue in our series through the book of Philippians this morning... We we finished the beginning of chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul greets the believers in Philippi and he outlines for them how he is praying for them as their favorite of all of the churches. And as we move along in the text this morning, we will see that Paul is now giving the church an update as to his circumstances and how God is using his circumstances to bring about the greatest ends. And, And like Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy and all of the women that were with them, Paul experienced a tremendous amount of hardship and trial and persecution, but he was able to look at those circumstances and he was able to give thanks for what he had experienced because God's ultimate ends were being accomplished. No doubt the the Philippians had had heard of all that Paul had experienced and, and likely were very concerned for him. The very same way that we would be concerned if we heard of one of our missionaries going through many of the things that, that Paul was going through, the persecution of being treated poorly. But, but Paul sets his mind at ease and he encourages the believers to have a right perspective about circumstances. All the while, as he sits in a prison cell, It's amazing stuff. Let's read together, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. I I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Well, great encouragement for us here from 
the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at the text under three headings this morning as we're called to embrace something, we're called to examine something, and we're called to rejoice and take advantage of something. So let's get started in our first encouragement from the text this morning. We find it in verses 12 through 14. Embrace your circumstances as God's means to proclaim Christ. Paul's letter now transitions, as we've said, from his introductory comments to the first major section of the overall letter. And he's explaining why he's writing to the Philippians, assuring all of them that the things that are confusing, the things that are troubling, have happened not to hinder, but rather to advance the gospel. The King James Version of verse 12 says, "...the things which have happened unto me have fallen out." unto the furtherance of the gospel. And that phrase, fallen out, means literally to come, or to come about, to come into being. So what Paul is saying here is, is the purpose in all that has happened has happened to him, and it's not just happened, but it has fallen out, as, as Proverbs says, from the lap of God's providence. All that's going on in me is from God. It is His providence. But what is Paul's aim here? What is he trying to tell them? What is the main thing he's addressing? Well, the main thing Paul is striving to do is to challenge the Philippians' perspective, first and foremost, on his own circumstances. Remember, he's in prison. He's endured a lot. They're very concerned for him. But he will always help them to consider their own circumstances as well, giving them perspective beyond themselves, beyond him, beyond us, beyond this life, beyond here and now to see greater, to see the bigger picture of God's sovereign work in every circumstance, in all of life. He wants them and he wants us to see that while oftentimes in our lives the Lord does things that we don't understand, or initially we don't see any reason for altogether. He, he wants us to know that the fleas are there for a reason. He's actually working in that for our good. God is using our circumstances, and Paul helps us to see it from God's perspective. Think about the Psalms. Think about the, the sort of pattern you see working through the Psalms as you read. They're developed, uh, this pattern as you, as you read through many of them. It's a pattern of righteous suffering and, and this lament from the psalmist that, that the wicked seem to be prospering while God's people are, are suffering. And, and what is the psalmist often saying? Why aren't you doing anything about this, God? And this is the sentiment that Paul is addressing here. When things are falling apart, when life is difficult, when it all seems like it couldn't get any worse, and then it does, there's this entire range of emotions that we go through, and we might turn to God and we might think, how long? God, why have you forgotten me? Or or maybe you have to come to terms with the reality that maybe you're angry with God. There are times when it's easy to feel distant from God. It's easy to feel like maybe God's abandoned me. Or our circumstances seem to prevent us from doing something that we think He's called us to do. Why, why, Lord, are you keeping me from this? And so in our prayers, we're asking for deliverance from these circumstances. And we just wonder, where is God? Does He even hear me right now? And think about this from the perspective of the Philippians. 
This guy who came to their town and proclaimed the gospel to them. And as a result of that, God made them new creatures in Christ. Now he's in prison. He's, he's been so used by God in such a powerful way, but now he's in prison. Why would God do that? He could be out preaching the gospel. He could be out doing so much more for the kingdom. And, and surely they're thinking, what in the world? Why is God letting this happen to the apostle Paul? But Paul is saying to them, no, 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 no. You've got this all wrong. This isn't hindering the advance of the gospel. This is helping the advance of the gospel. Don't you know? This is God's gospel and our God is sovereign. He's not going to allow the advance of the gospel to stop. He will not. The gospel will go forward. But we can understand what the Philippians are thinking, can't we? Just pick any day of the week and look at the news cycle. Read the headlines and listen to what the pundits are saying. And at some point, you're going to have this thought. What is going on here? Lord, why are you letting this happen? It seems like things are going in the wrong direction. Think about it. Just this week, think about just this week in the United Kingdom. The supposed paragon of Western civilization mandated by court order that a 23-month-old child be removed from life support and not be allowed to be taken by his parents on a waiting helicopter to be sent to Italy to pick him up, to bring him to a hospital that offered to give him life-saving treatment because the government doctors in the UK decided further treatment would be futile and not in his best interests. So the government in London decided that a 23-month-old child should die apart from his parents' wishes. Their rights were stripped away. On Monday, he was removed from life support. They said he would die immediately, but instead, he breathed on his own for several days. But they weren't administering nutrition. They weren't administering oxygen. Essentially, they suffocated him to death by court order. When he would stop breathing, his own father would give him mouth to mouth and resuscitate him for a while. And then he would breathe on his own again until yesterday morning he died. Meanwhile, outside the hospital, there was an entire team of police preventing the parents from taking him out of the hospital, preventing anyone coming in to try and help them remove him from the hospital. The London police issued a public statement saying, we're monitoring social media, and if anything has, anyone has anything to say about what we're doing, we're going to respond to that. Now, we hear that and we think that's utterly unfathomable. That's supposed to be a free nation. Something like that couldn't happen. That a parent's rights for their children could be so easily taken away and they could be so threatened with imprisonment for trying to keep their child alive. And they're forced to sit beside their child's bed and breathe air into his lungs because people who have taken an oath to save a life refuse to do it and prevent them from doing it. But is it any surprise in a nation that allows the merciless slaughter of children in the womb would also devalue life at 23 months? Or 10 years? Or 50 years? Now rest assured, if Alfie Evans was on an endangered species list and lived in the ocean, every animal rights activist organization on the planet would fight to make sure that he was given every chance to live. 
but Alfie was only a human boy. Now, I don't know about you, but that does something to me. It does something to me at a level that is unlike most things. It fills me with this righteous anger that I can feel myself just getting hot talking about it right now. Because there are multiple, multiple things wrong with that situation. The most important of which is that God hates it with a holy hatred and so should you. And there are a lot of those kinds of things that go on in the world, right? And we look at them and we say, Lord, why? Why is that happening? How could this possibly be part of your plan? But, but here's the thing that Paul's getting at here. If we allow our perspective toward the circumstances around us every single day to prevail, if we leave it up to our own finite thinking, our own finite wisdom, if we leave it up to our small perspectives and just end with being angry or confused or sort of throwing our hands up in dismay, we are going to be utterly useless to God in this world because of our frustration and because of our anger, because it all grows to bitterness and hopelessness and it can make us completely ineffective. And so while we should be praying and, and, and laying our hearts out before God and pleading with the Lord, like we talked about last week, wrapped into all of that is our need to have a right perspective about circumstances to change, right? Think again about the Psalms. When, when the psalmist cried out about their circumstances and said, why, God, why? What changed? Well, typically what changed wasn't the circumstances, at least in that moment, right? What changes? Their, what changes is their perspective, their thinking, their attitude. What God wants is for us to start looking from His perspective instead of from our own human perspective. Think of it for Paul. Here's the description he gives of his own experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's responding to a people, these, these, what he mockingly called the super apostles who were opposing him. But listen to his outline here. Here's what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was what Paul was living this is what the Philippians had in mind as they're considering Paul's circumstances. And he says, in light of all of that, my dear brothers and sisters, take heart. All of this is serving the gospel. How? Let me tell you, he says, the whole imperial guard now knows that I'm in prison because I proclaim Christ. And there are other brothers and sisters out there now who see that I've been able to endure all of this for the sake of Christ. And so they're emboldened. And now they're talking to people about Christ. And they're, they're talking about what we're doing and what we're saying. And as a result, the gospel is being proclaimed. Christ 
is being proclaimed. So whatever it takes, brothers and sisters, whatever it takes that Christ is proclaimed, this is a good thing. No, this is a great thing. Don't despair because of my circumstances. God is using them for His kingdom's sake. God is using my circumstances to advance the gospel of Christ. And we ought to be thankful for that. And so what that means is that Paul's preaching was going, as he says, to the imperial guard because he was physically chained to these men. These were, these were highly paid guards. They worked for the highest levels of the Roman government, and guarding Paul meant being chained to him. And don't you know that Paul was going to take advantage of every situation he had to talk to them. And he walked them from Genesis through Malachi and through the life and ministry of Jesus to tell them about the promise and the fulfillment that came in Jesus Christ. Men were being converted. Pagan men at the highest level of the Roman government were being transformed by the gospel through Paul's preaching. And so the gospel penetrated right at the heart of the Roman city. When else would he have had that opportunity? How else could Paul have been able to do that? And we know that some of them were converted because what we'll see at the very end of the letter is when he's sending his final greetings, he says he's sending greetings especially from those of Caesar's household. Isn't that amazing? You see, brothers and sisters, our perspective matters. And one of the things that we need to be praying for is that God would help us to embrace all of our circumstances in our lives as an opportunity to see Christ proclaimed. That's the perspective we need. Well, the second thing we're called to this morning, verses 15 through 17, that we must examine our motives when proclaiming Christ. No doubt, it seems like there were problems in the Roman church. Paul's referring to those problems here as he writes to the Philippians. Rome is, as we've identified already, uh, where he was jailed, where he was in prison. Now, despite the fact that many were encouraged and emboldened to proclaim Christ, there's actually uh, two groups of, of preachers in Rome at the time, and they're, they're preaching with two different motives. The first group were, were men who were nothing more than jealous of Paul's accomplishments as a minister of the gospel. Now, don't think for one minute that there isn't ministerial jealousy and rivalry in the church. Pastors, preachers, ministers, we're all men, and we all have ambitions. And if we're not careful, our hearts can be easily caught up in wondering why people are going to hear someone else preach the way they're preaching instead of us. There's a lot of men, many, many of them still uh, preaching today. And this happens in all kinds of circles, but one example of it is it. A lot of men who uh, were in seminary and they, they were starting out in their churches in the 70s and the 80s, they would, what would they do? They'd dress a certain way. They would march around the platform with an open Bible, pointing to the Bible, saying, the Bible says, because they wanted to be the next Billy Graham. If Billy did it and millions of people listen to him, maybe then I can do it too. Now, that's not to say all of them were doing that out of envy or rivalry, but certainly some of them were. Certainly some of them are. And there are many different examples of that today. The Greek 
historian Xenophon said, the envious are those annoyed only at their friends' successes. Envy is a fleshly desire to see another person deprived of something. We just prayed earlier today. An envious person has a, has a displeasure when they see others in possession of something good. And, and they resent them when, when the other person is praised. They want people to shift and praise them instead. And we, we need to pray that God would keep us from that kind of attitude. Now, there's, there's no doubt at this point that Paul had come into Rome with more ministerial successes to his credit than anyone else. Hands down. What Paul possessed was a unique gifting from God that was unlike anyone else. He had taken the gospel to Asia Minor, to Europe. He fought off Judaizers and heretics all along the way, and he had won time and time again. So when Paul arrived in Rome, of course, the whole church's attention turned to him. There was a buzz. What what was he going to say? Everyone wants to take notes. We, we need to hear him. We need to hear what he's saying. Let, let's see if he'll tell us what's, what's going on out there. And, and maybe he was, he was preaching at a church down the road, and, and so a pastor came to the church where he preaches, and everyone was gone. <laughs> but they, they wanted to hear the Apostle Paul. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of interest. There's no doubt in the midst of all of that. Some of the church's leadership was envious. And it began a contentious gospel rivalry. However, Paul acknowledges that others are preaching Christ from goodwill. So we have both groups. They do it, Paul says in verse 16, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They get it. They see what's going on with Paul and they rejoice because they know that Paul was given a special calling by God to do what he did and that his imprisonment was part of his defense of the gospel. So instead of being jealous, they understood that God uses all of us differently and he does. He blesses our work differently. And so these men were preaching Christ out of their love for God and his, and his will for their love for Paul. So, so we have two groups in Rome. They're both preaching the gospel, one doing it out of love, the other doing it from ill will. But both of them are preaching the truth, that Christ has lived a sinless life that we couldn't live, that Christ died a sinner's death that we all deserve, and Christ was resurrected from the dead. They were all proclaiming that great truth, that God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And they were saying what I'm saying to you right now. To have life. To live. Not just now, but forever and ever before God. That we need a righteousness that is not of our own. It is the righteousness of Christ. And by faith that we can have Him and take Him. That He would be ours. They were calling people to faith in Christ. No matter their motive, those with ill will, those with a right motive, they were proclaiming the gospel. But those with ill will, those with wrong motives, they were filled with envy. Notice that Paul is making evident. They weren't heretics. They weren't apostates. They weren't preaching another gospel. 
There's no indication of that at all, especially with what Paul says. They were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the biblical Christ. They were not anti-Christian. They were anti-Paul. Verse 17, Paul is telling us that they were petty. They were territorial. They were self-promoting. But they weren't, self, they weren't false teachers. They seem to have delighted somewhat in Paul's imprisonment, though. It's kind of a matter of him now being out of the way so that they could be noticed. <coughs> I'm not exaggerating. There are conversations in churches and denominations when men are no longer the pastors of big, well-known churches for one reason or another. In some conversations, you can almost sense a, a giddiness about that because that means there might be an opportunity for someone else to be considered. They might be the next one called up to come and take his place as if working in ministry is like climbing the corporate ladder. The sheer crudeness of that is astounding. The literal sense of what Paul is saying here is that they are, they are delighting in this to afflict me, to, to raise up affliction in me. So the meaning is to stir up some inward annoyance within him, some trouble of his spirit. They actually preached Christ with the hope that it would rub into, it would rub salt into Paul's wounds. And we can't doubt that their actions did hurt him and made his imprisonment far worse. You know, that, that, there's a terrible kind of wicked attitude to have. And that, that's with anybody in any position to be envious and to desire their downfall in such a way that we want to rub salt into their wounds, but doesn't it just sting all the more knowing that that takes place in gospel ministry? That, that such a worldly attitude is in the church, and even though people are hearing the truth, even though people are being transformed and brought into the kingdom, there's still envy and rivalry and a desire to see Paul do poorly so they can advance themselves. It's really destructive what happens when we turn to ourselves and, and we, we start to be so concerned with ourselves that we want to turn away from living for the advantage of others. When we stop living to do whatever it takes to make sure that Christ is proclaimed in whatever way God chooses to use us. And yet, how we respond when the flesh is in action. How we respond when others are preaching Christ. We respond with envy and... and, and and the flesh takes over and, and we see others and we don't want to live for their advantage. We want to take away their advantage so that we would have it. But our response to them still matters. Paul's response to them mattered. And we see in our final point this morning in verse 18. That Paul's response needs to be our response. Rejoice and thank God for every opportunity to proclaim Christ. Yogi Berra used to say when giving people directions to his house, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, he wasn't actually joking because in the end, no matter which direction you went, they met up at the same place, which was his house. And that's sort of what Paul is saying here, right? Whether it's a terrible motive or a right motive, Christ is being proclaimed. And so in that, I rejoice. What an incredible perspective, right? Now, of course, Paul wasn't commending an envious, uh, rivalrous motive. He wasn't saying that in itself that this was a good thing that was going on, but his focus is set on something larger. 
It's off of Him. It's off of other men. It's on Christ. The gospel is advancing, and that is the big picture. That's the focus, you see. Are you going to face some trial? Are you going to face some difficulties? May you possibly face some persecution in your life because you're a Christian? No doubt about it. You will. You have. But how are you going to look at all of it? You see, the perspective Paul is teaching us here is that we need not let our, hang, our heads hang low. We shouldn't get angry unrighteously. We shouldn't assume it's all over. The perspective Paul is teaching us is to constantly look at all of our circumstances and say, I wonder what Christ is going to do with this situation that His greatness might be proclaimed. I wonder what God's up to in the midst of my circumstances right now that Christ is proclaimed. Do you have that kind of perspective in all of your circumstances? On January 9th, 1985, Pastor Haristo Kulichev, a congregational pastor in Bulgaria, was arrested and put in prison. His crime was that he preached in his church, even though the state had appointed another man to be the pastor whom the congregation did not elect to be the pastor. His trial was, of course, a mockery of justice. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. And during that time in prison, he made Christ known in every possible way he could. And when he got out, he wrote in an article, he said, Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. There are thousands of stories like that to tell today. Even more from the centuries of church history. The lessons come true again and again and again. God uses our persecution. God uses our suffering to spread the truth of Christ and to bless the world with the gospel. God rules over our suffering and our our trials and and, and the ill motives of others and persecution of the church. And He causes all of them to be used for the proclamation of Christ to a lost and dying world. It's not His only way, but it seems to be a frequent way. God spurs the church on to to missionary service by by the suffering that she endures. And, And so Paul implores us, Don't judge too quickly the apparent setbacks and supposed defeats of the church. If you see things from the eyes of God, the master strategist who cannot and will not lose, what you see in every setback is the positioning for a greater advance and a greater display of the wisdom and power and love of God. Look, it's really easy to look at the world around us and think that things aren't going very well for the church. But need I remind you that the Lord Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not, will not, cannot prevail against the kingdom of God. And so we need not despair. We need not hold back. We need not look at our circumstances and think that the church is on its last breath. No, we need a godly perspective. We need the perspective of heaven. For Paul, the gospel was central. D.A. Carson comments, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. 
Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. What are your aspirations? Don't despise them, don't set them aside, but don't think of them without being centrally focused on the proclamation of Christ through your use of the gifts that God has given you and as He gives you opportunity. We each have our calling in life. An electrician, a teacher, a mother, a plumber, an analyst, a lawyer, a mechanic, a musician, a fireman, whatever your calling is, the gospel must be first. Life will have its ups and downs for all of us. There will be times when we feel metaphorically chained to the circumstances of our lives, misunderstood, maligned, ignored. But if the gospel is first in our lives, we can be confident that we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, brothers and sisters, we can, we shall, we must rejoice.